Hi, Yuri Zacharias here with The Apologist Bookshelf. If you had the opportunity to quiz one of the foremost theologians, what kinds of questions would you come up with? If I'm happy with my life, why do I need Jesus? Why do Christians disagree about what the Bible says? Is there a clear biblical position against lotteries and casino gambling? Well, these questions and about 300 others are answered by R.C. Sproul, who has uh, since passed away, but this book came out in the late 1990s, so it's been around a while. That means there may be some used books available uh, at a decent price, and I think you'd get a lot out of it, and a lot of this does not go out of date. Uh, Topics like uh, Who's Jesus, Work of the Holy Spirit, Section on the Bible, Section on the Way of Salvation, Sin, Faith and Philosophy, Power and Purpose of Prayer, Growing Spiritual Life, Understanding Satan, Heaven and Hell, and on and on. So many good things to get into here. I'm going to pick a chapter that's called uh, Faith. It's dealing with faith. This is chapter, see if I can find it here, chapter 12, Sharing the Faith. So he starts, every section here starts with a question that somebody's asked him, and then he responds. And they're, they're short responses, I'll, I'll tell you that. They're not lengthy, so you may feel like, well, I could have gotten more depth somewhere else. That's true, but that's okay. Now, this is a good, open, uh, kind of a, a 30,000 feet view of things here. He's got almost 600 pages, so think about 300 questions, so about a page and a half, two pages per question. Anyway, so here we go. Uh, this is a section sharing the faith. First question was, what is faith? And he says, you know, the whole concept of faith is misunderstood. And I've spoken on this to church groups as well, and I agree. Uh, people have the idea of faith as being a leap in the dark. You'll hear people say things like, gosh, I wish I had your faith. I just need to generate more faith. And that's not the kind of faith the Bible talks about. So he said, the New Testament uses that Greek word pistian. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but that means to believe. And he said there are actually three different aspects of biblical faith. First is notitia. That means you believe in the data. So it's an intellectual awareness. So basically, you don't have faith in nothing. There has to be some kind of content. You have to believe something or someone. So that's the first thing, just information. Second aspect of faith is what is called a census or intellectual assent. And at that point, you have to be persuaded of the truthfulness of the content. So you might be convinced intellectually that Jesus is the Son of God, but demons believe that too. That's not saving faith yet. The third one, though, this is the crucial element, he says, the most vital element of saving faith in the biblical sense is trust. And I agree with that. that that's what uh, I've spent time uh, talking about with uh, different people in church groups, and that is to consider when we talk about the Christian faith, we're talking about trust. And it's, of course, the question of what do we have trust in? And we have so many good reasons to have trust in Christ. And he's the one in the New Testament stories, he's the one that always offered evidence. So our trust is based on evidence. It's not based on pie in the sky. It's not based on wishful thinking. All right, let me come back to Sproul here. So he says, personal trust is the most vital element of saving faith, and that's fiducia. And that's a fiduciary commitment that you put your life in the lap of Jesus. You trust him, and you trust him alone. He said that's crucial. That involves the intellect and involves the mind. But he said it goes to the heart and to the will. So the whole person is caught up in faith. So I think that was crucial. Greg Kokel has talked about that as well. 
uh, talking about Christian trust. That's our faith. It's trust because we've seen what Jesus has done for us and for others. It's, uh, so it's important that we use that word trust far more than we use the word faith. Here comes a second question in this chapter about faith. Is the Christian faith rational? Right? Because again, you think about how do people sometimes see faith. It's that leap in the dark. It's just jumping out and not knowing what's out there. But he says it is rational. He says, it, does it make sense? Does it fit together in a pattern of truth? And he said, yeah. He said, the God of Christianity addresses people's minds. He speaks to us. He said, that book, the Bible, was written for our understanding. It's intelligible. We can understand it with our intellect. We don't have to throw away our minds to become Christians. He said, the only leap that the New Testament calls us to make is not into the darkness, but out of the darkness into the light, into the light that we can understand. Now, of course, he cautions us here, which is good. He says, that's not to say that everything the Christian faith speaks to is clear with respect to rational categories. He said, for an example, uh, he said, I don't understand how a person can have a divine nature and a human nature at the same time, but that's what we believe about Jesus. But he says, you know, that's a mystery. It's not irrational. It's a mystery. And he said, it's mystery as far as other things, too, like gravity. You know, how does gravity work? Well, that seems to be pretty mysterious. So he says, it's one thing to say, I don't understand from my finite mind how these things work out. But he says, it's a very different thing to say, oh, they're blatantly contradictory and irrational, but I'm going to believe them anyway. That's not what Christianity does. It says there are mysteries, but those mysteries can't be articulated in terms of the irrational. If you start getting into that, you've moved away from the Christian faith. You've removed, removed yourself from Christian truth. Here's a third question that people have asked. Is evangelism a necessary activity for a Christian? And he said he hears that a lot, that people say, well, every Christian must be the, doing the work of the evangelist. But Sproul kind of puts the brakes on that. He says, I'm not sure. He said, what was an evangelist? He proclaimed the gospel. And that was one of the gifts of the Spirit. And it wasn't given to everybody. So he says, you know, in the technical sense, it really is not every Christian's responsibility to be an evangelist. But Every Christian, according to the New Testament, is to be a witness. And he said, today we kind of mix those two up. We kind of say witness and evangelist as if they're the same term. But he said, the New Testament makes a clear distinction. Witness is a broad statement. To, wit to bear witness to somebody is just to make something visible that is not readily visible or not manifest, but maybe invisible. And he said, the New Testament word for witness is Martyria, which is the word that we get the English word martyr. Those who died for the faith bore witness or made manifest their commitment to Christ. He said that was one way of doing it, but that wasn't the work of evangelism. Evangelism, he says, is one specific form of witnessing. We're all called to witness. Every person, every Christian, is called to confess Jesus with speech as well as actions. But not everyone is called, at least according to Sproul, to be an evangelist. That's a special task. So he says the church is given the responsibility of the Great Commission, and we're part of the church there, so we've got to do our part to see that that task is done. But he points out again that evangelism involves much more than just evangelists. Uh, people have to print Bibles, for instance, and then people have to distribute them. People fund missionary trips. People uh, minister in various ways to the missionaries and the evangelists. So I thought that was an interesting distinction that he made between being an evangelist and being a witness. Here's one more question. What makes Christianity, and not Buddhism or Hinduism, the right religion? 
And of course, we're hearing that more and more, aren't we, these days, as we have religious pluralism in this country. He said people sometimes wonder, well, am I a Christian because I happen to be born and raised in a Christian environment? Where Christianity is a dominant religion, I haven't had much exposure to Hinduism or Islam or Buddhism. He said the only way you can really satisfy yourself on something like this is sit down, do an evaluation, do a serious study of the basic tenets of world religions. Now, I know a lot of people don't do that. At our uh, apologetics class at our church, uh, we are doing that. We're going through major world religions and what they call new religious movements, sometimes called cults. That's kind of a negative term for it. But we, we take a look at them, everything from Roman Catholicism to Buddhism to Hinduism to New Age to Scientology. And, and we need to do that because it helps clarify what we believe. It's really important. He said, actually, if you look at the world religions, and this is what we've been doing in our class, you put their basic teachings side by side, there's a world of difference. They contradict each other in what their highest ideals are and their holy books and their, the way you get saved, you know, what's the method of salvation and what's the problem facing us. It's all different. They can't all possibly be true in what they claim. Now, they could all be wrong, but they can't all be right. So he said, uh, people that don't want to look closely at the issue that divide the world religions are kind of living in a dream world. He said, um, in this book, he said we can't do uh, set forth a case for the distinctive truth claims of Christianity. But he said the one thing, and I agree with him here, the one thing Christianity has that all other religions do not have is Christ. That's God incarnate and his work of atonement. Boy, amen to that, because you don't see that in any other religion. Now, many of them will hijack Jesus and bring them into their faith somewhere, but they don't make him... God incarnate, and they don't say you need his atoning work for salvation, but they'll bring him in, right? So they everybody loves Jesus. Uh, as J. Warner Wallace talks about, he's a person of interest. That's uh, Wallace's newer book. So everybody likes him, and for good reason, but only Christianity puts him at the center of their religion. Here's a question. How can you present the gospel to a friend or family member who might be an atheist? And he said, whoa, that is a heavy burden for people who have um, family members and best friends and all. You know, what, what do you do if somebody's not a Christian? He said, I thought it was cute. He told his story when he was a brand new Christian. He said he had such zeal and he desperately wanted to see his family come to Christ. And that's great. But he said he did everything the wrong way. He came on too strong. He said, I practically beat them to death, quoting scripture. He left tracks on their nightstands. He said how they saw it was that he disapproved of them. He said, that wasn't what I was trying to communicate, but that's how they took it. He gave a story about the same thing with his mom and telling her, uh, you know, I'm now a Christian. She said, well, you've always been a Christian. And no. So she got defensive. This is what she heard. Mom, you didn't raise me with a proper value system. You're not a Christian. You're not worthy of being my mother. That's what she was hearing. So he said, we have to be really sensitive to the feelings of those close to us because they have a lot invested in that relationship we have for them. He said, I have to earn the right to be heard with friends and family. He said, we assume because we're friends, they're going to take what we say seriously. But when you come to them with something new, that basically has a veiled criticism where they're standing with respect to God and Christ. They're going to see that 
as personal rejection or at least disapproval. So he said, before I can explain Christ to them or defend the faith to them, I have to prove to them that I'm their friend or I'm the son or I'm the brother so they don't perceive I'm making a radical break from the relationship. Along with that, here's a question. How can I tell others about Jesus in a manner that's non-threatening but yet convincing? Now he said, good point here, people are extremely sensitive about how they're approached on matters of religion. Uh, people who are excited about their faith in Christ want to share it, and they have good intentions. But often we come across the people basically saying, I'm good and you're not. So no wonder people get turned off by that. And he says, rightly so. He said, you know, one way to think about true evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar how to find bread. So there's nothing that should make us boastful about our faith. We have to recognize that our faith is a result of God's grace. It's nothing that we're doing. So when we talk to people, we have to be gracious. We have to be kind. He says the fruit of the Spirit says gentleness and meekness and patience and love. Those are the attributes. And that's the spirit in which we're called to communicate. Then he, he has a warning here, which I think is useful. He said, even if we are gracious and even if we are kind, even if we're sensitive to people, we can't remove altogether what the New Testament calls the offense of the gospel. Because the gospel calls people to repentance, and people are really threatened by that. Nobody wants to bend their knee. Everybody thinks they have the right answers, and they can plow through life all on their own. So he said, let's be careful, though. He said, let's not add unnecessarily to that offense that's built into the message of sin and redemption. So I thought that was good. He said, many times people get angry, not because they're offended by Christ, because they're, but because they're offended by our being insensitive toward them as people. So I think that's really, truly valuable. One more question. My father's not a Christian. Whenever I talk to him, he doesn't listen, no matter what I talk to him about. It's gotten to the point, I don't even try to make conversation with him. What should I do? This is a woman that contacted him about that. And he said, you know, one of the deepest struggles any Christian faces is how to communicate faith to friends and family. Now he tells again about his own excitement and how a lot of people rejected him because he came on too strong. He said, thank goodness that people did come to faith in, in Christ, but it wasn't because of sprawl. He said, people, uh, God used other people to reach his family. So he said, we have to be patient. And he tells the story of St. Augustine, his mother, Monaco. She was a devout Christian. Now, he became pretty wild and uh, lustful and living quite a non-Christian lifestyle. And it says, for years, every single night, she prayed for Augustine and saw no 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 change no response whatsoever and one time out of desperation she went to see her pastor the great bishop ambrose of milan italy so she poured out her heart to the bishop and here's what he said to her monica can a child of so many tears possibly be lost so what he was saying was that certainly god isn't going to say no to the petitions of a mother that's being so earnest and he said i'm not sure that's great theology <laughs> But it is possible that, you know, somebody may not come to faith, but he said there tends to be a correlation between our patience and our faithfulness to God and God's willingness to honor and bless that. So he said, what you need to do is to pray and be as loving a daughter as you possibly can to your dad. God didn't call you to be your father's evangelist. He called you to be your father's daughter. And the more Christian a daughter you are, the more God will be inclined to use that in a positive way. So I thought that was powerful. 
Okay, well, I will knock off here, but uh, this is R.C. Sproul. Now, that's a good question. That's the title. Now, that's a good question. And uh, Sproul is a terrific writer. You can tell how easy, how uh, simple he is, but he's, he's deep. He's got a lot of good answers here. So maybe you can find the book uh, at a used bookshop uh, online. Amazon may have some spare copies. Over 300 questions that are asked about life and faith. Well, thanks. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and let's do another podcast soon.